First John chapter five. I'll start now in the middle of verse four. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is, is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why stick in the face of propaganda? Why stick in the face of propaganda? Propaganda is exactly what this church faced, false teaching which altered the word of God, biased, misleading information, lies bombarding their senses every day. Powerful, persuasive, problematic lies. Though the false teachers, like every false teacher, um, was half right, nuanced, really close to the truth, very hard to spot, uh, difficult to diagnose. Uh, We'll see, uh, they were happy to talk about Jesus, but there were limits. Um, It's worth pausing and just realizing every generation faces false teachers. Uh, Jesus, Jesus told us it would be that way. Yet do we believe false teachers are real? Are we aware that some things might be propaganda? Don't believe everything you hear. Uh, John here equips the church to sieve the lies, to stay in the right place. Uh, If this was a game of stick or twist, John would say stick every time. Abide, 
That's his favorite word that he uses throughout the letter. Uh, Stay exactly where you are, Christian. Yet twisting is always tempting, isn't it? You might win. Gamble. Maybe the grass is greener on the other side when you twist. So what is John helping us stick with exactly? Stick simply with this. This is the book. Stick firstly in the apostles' teaching and secondly in loving each other. That's what the book's been helping us in. In a nutshell, that's all the book's been saying. And today is exactly the same, just in slightly different terms. Uh, Today's question, how does John finish persuading this wobbly church to stick and not twist? Answer with very uh, three very reassuring and logically linked statements. As we've seen before, John loves a trio of statements. He is linguistically very careful like that. I don't know if you spotted them as we went through. The trio of statements here, which are flagged by the phrase, and this is, have a look down with me, and this is, halfway through verse 4, and this is, verse 11, and this is, and verse 14, and this is. Let's take them in each in turn. Halfway through verse 4, firstly, and this is the victory, our faith. Let me ask you, do you want to win? Some people don't like playing games uh, because they might lose, so they don't want to play at all. But setting that aside, I think we all love to win, don't we? There's a reason why Liverpool, Liverpool got more fans in the 80s, Manchester United got more fans in the 90s, and Manchester City have got more fans this last decade. Uh, they were all winning. Who doesn't want to be a winner? Ask any football fan if they wanted to win the league or the cup that year. They'll do anything for it, wouldn't they? Everyone loves to win. Uh, did you know that Bayern Munich have won their league now nine times in a row? Boring? Well, unless you're a Bayern Munich fan, that is. Christians, though, we are the winners. And not just of a league or a cup for just a year, or of anything trivial like that, in fact. Uh, Christians, look down with me, they overcome the world. Uh, The world here, that means uh, this worldly order of sin and death under the power of Satan, the evil one, verse 19. What gained us that victory? What gained us that victory? Seemingly our faith. But our faith in what? Verse 5, not in me, myself and I. We are not big enough or strong enough or clever enough to overcome the world. I hope that's obvious to you. Actually, it was nothing we contributed at all. It's our faith in the Son. That is who overcomes the world. Verse 5, we just join the Son in faith. Uh, What do I mean? Um, You all here right now have faith in your chairs at this moment in time. I can tell because you're all sitting down. But let's just imagine some of us have less faith than others um, in their chairs at this moment in time. Maybe this morning you tentatively approached your chair 
and sat down very gingerly on it. Not sure about the structure of this particular chair. But whether you sit tentatively on your chair or you really throw yourself into your chair, it doesn't make a blind bit of difference, does it? Why? Well, because your faith in the chair doesn't change the fact that the chair is doing all of the work in holding you up. It does the same job either way, irrelevant of your faith in said chair. And that's the same with Jesus. Exactly the same with Jesus. Tiny, tentative faith or big, bold faith does not matter. Jesus is the one who overcomes the world. We just need to trust him enough to lean into him, so to speak, so that we can win. It's actually the same with football teams, actually. You you trust your team, don't you? You have faith in them, only there is no guarantee your football team is going to win every time. Just speak to any football fan if you ever um, don't believe me that. Other than Bayern Munich, maybe that is. Although there will come a day, they will lose. That's not the story with Jesus, though, is it? Jesus wins. And our faith in him means we win too. Uh, This is all unpacked in verse 6. Here, John is taking the the false teachers to court. It's like he's saying, Christian, uh, imagine you're in the courtroom. Uh, Get your wig on, though, because you're the judge. Uh, The false teachers, they're the prosecutors, uh, yet they have no case whatsoever. Uh, What witnesses can they call to the stand? Uh, They only promote their own opinions. Uh, That's no witness at all. Don't believe their lies. It's nothing but propaganda. So John says, just look at the witnesses I can call. And they are some incredible witnesses. Uh, Just look at this with me. Three witnesses, verse 7. For there are three that testify the spirit and the water and the blood. And crucial for any defense, these three all agree. They all agree. Now we need to pause and consider uh, who are these three witnesses. Uh, Let's start with the trickiest, uh, the water. There's lots of options out there. Um, Believe you me, I've been reading about them all week. But simplistically, it could refer to either the baptism of Jesus in some sense, Or the incarnation of Jesus, meaning his birth, a word become flesh. His life lived on earth, born by the water, if you like, amniotic fluid, if that's not too much detail for a Sunday morning. Other options are available. Talk to me later if you care about hearing them. But which is it? Is it water of baptism or of birth or of something else? I think it's hard to be sure. It might depend on how John uses water in his gospel, but I think it could be just as easily a term the false teachers coined. Uh, You can make up your own mind. Uh, But importantly, I think, is this, and I think none of the commentaries seem to notice this. I'm not sure it matters a whole lot. Uh, See, what is at stake here is, is not the water. Did you see that? Halfway through verse 6, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. 
The false teachers were happy to talk about Jesus and the water, whatever that is, but not the blood. The blood is the sticking point. Um, So fretting over what the water is won't really benefit us all that much. Uh, What they wanted to leave behind was the blood. So what's the blood? Here there's less confusion, thankfully. Uh, Jesus is atoning blood. The death that clinches victory over the whole world, sin, death, and the devil. And his point is very simple, actually. You can't have the water without the blood. And the life of Jesus without the death is pointless. Uh, clearly, the false teachers were happy to, in some sense, have Jesus walking on earth, but to die for them was a step too far. So whatever the water is, John says it agrees with the blood and the spirit. Let's not forget the third witness. The spirit was given to the apostles. Uh, He helped breathe out the scriptures for us. And he lives inside of us all now, testifying to us that this is reality. And verse 10, we are now another testimony through the spirit living in us. Friends, do you have the Son? You do. Do you feel reassured? John wants us to be so assured, just like Jenny was helping us with. This is the victory, our faith. Faith in the Son, backed up by the three greatest witnesses any court has ever seen. Are you sure? So why is this so hard to believe? Why is this so hard to believe? If you like, why do we need to be reassured about this victory with these witnesses? I think it's this. Our faith doesn't feel victorious right now. Actually, it feels pretty rubbish right now. Uh, What we've read today does not mean it looks like we're on the winning side. Uh, This victory is invisible. But that is precisely what the witnesses are there for. Just think with me for a moment about the last 2,000 years of church history. Can you think of a time when the church has ever looked really victorious. When it has shown signs of it, it's only ever a flash in the pan, isn't it? It's always on a knife edge. And think of your own personal story and testimony of becoming a Christian. Was it fireworks? What did victory look like then? Why do we expect it to be any different now? Actually, consider ultimately, how victorious looking is the cross? Why do we expect anything different to that? We proclaim the water, the blood, and the spirit. A life and death for everybody's forgiveness, and a testimony by the spirit in a 2,000-year-old book. 
It's not going to be an easy sell, is it? A victory is deliberately designed by God to feel like the cross. Frankly, it'll feel rubbish. That is why John needs to reassure them. And John has still further reassurance still. Our second reassuring statement. Look down with me, verses 11 to 13. And this is the testimony. Life in the sun. Life in the sun. Imagine uh, you examined our three witnesses in the dock. Cross-examination can reveal mixed messages, mixed motives. But our three witnesses all agree. End of verse 8. What do the the three witnesses all agree on? What do they all testify to? Cut their story anywhere and they'll all say exactly the same thing. Life. Life in his son. Chapter 1 verse 2 told us this was the the point right up front. Life was made manifest. Chapter 5 verse 20. Jesus himself is eternal life. And so by faith, we have eternal life. But what is that life? What is that life? It's just worth pausing here and considering eternal life. Uh, Life is clearly big in our Bible studies in John's Gospel at the moment, isn't it? But we find it so hard to grasp hold of the concept. Life is simply a relationship with God. And that's not to make Jesus into your boyfriend, but to relate to him, to know him, to know him as closely, actually, as Jesus knows the Father. That is quite some relationship, if you think about it. And that life starts as much now as it continues later. So important that we don't limit the Christian life to just waiting for Jesus to come and get us. We live now as his children in the love of God. Life starts now as well as continues forever. And so we land uh, on verse 13, and we've said all series, and Jenny helped us so much, didn't she? John's explicit purpose statement for the book. Know that you know. Know that you know Jesus, and so you have life eternal. If you know Jesus, you have life. If you have life, you have Jesus. Because verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. You can trust Jesus' life and death. You can trust the Spirit's testimony in the Scriptures. You can trust the Spirit working inside your life right now. You do know him. You do have life, both now and forever. So why is this so hard to grasp? Why is this so hard to grasp? Except for each other which we saw last week and the week before, life now is as seen as Jesus is. In other words, it's basically invisible. Not seeing life is going to be really hard for us, isn't it? That's why John pushes so hard from the last two weeks that we should love each other. 
Listen to last week's sermon to understand why that is so important. But it's also hard, not just because we can't see it, but because we are not actually at the centre of it. We hate that. Uh, We proclaim the message, but Jesus is the life. Uh, We are not the answer to people's problems. Jesus is. If you ever hit a moment of doubt, then you need Jesus. Uh, Jesus is all anybody ever needs. He's the message. He is life. Whoever has the Son has life. So John continues to reassure us further. If, if life now is basically invisible, should we see any visible differences? And I think this is where John is starting for the very first time in the book to define what he, it looks like to love each other. Some of you were asking me about this last week, after last week's sermon. All very well good um, talking about how we should love each other, but what does that actually look like in practice? Here, our third reassuring statement helps us so much. Verse 14. And this is the confidence. God hears us. This is the confidence. God hears us. Chapter 5, verse 14. Ask according to his will, then God does hear you. He hears us. So we know we have our requests granted. Uh, Notice here just both the unlimited nature, middle of verse 14, anything, but also the shape, according to his will, anything according to his will. And I presume that um, that means, according to his will means, prayers fitting with Jesus' sacrificial death and loving the brothers. So can I ask you, Uh, Is this how we pray? Is this how we pray? I don't know about you, but my prayers are often pretty tiny in scope and relatively limited. And sometimes very little to do with what I think God's will is. Do you find that to be the case for you? So we need the help of verse 16. Uh, These verses illustrate what John is talking about. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. So pray for each other when they sin. Isn't that a bit surprising? Can you see, though, why John would want us to be doing this? Can you see why he'd want us to restore each other? Uh, to be keeping each other in the family. This is plainly going to keep you and each of us here reassured in our faith. Uh, Think about it. Um, How often do we stop praying um, after we've sinned? Is that just me that has that experience? Uh, Sin is the massive barrier to prevent us from confidently sticking and talking to God. When we sin, how do we feel? I feel guilty. That's my normal experience. So what are we going to run to do naturally? Well, run away from God if I feel guilty. How much would the evil one 
love that kind of response from us. Wouldn't he love that? We need each other to apply the blood to our sin. We need to help each other confess. Uh, We just need to pause, though, for a moment and consider, because there's a tricky thing here. Verse 16, I don't know if you spotted it. Uh, What does John mean here by a sin not leading to death? Did you spot that and feel that? What sort of sin are we talking about? Because here's the problem. Scripture's really clear. Um, All sin leads to death. Uh, That's the very definition of sin, actually. Uh, So why does John say that there is a sin that doesn't lead to death? It's very confusing on the surface. What is John talking about exactly? And it's worth saying this is one of the places where uh, official Roman Catholic teaching um, teaches that you need a special ministry of a special person praying special prayers for you before you can actually be forgiven. See, official Roman Catholic doctrine teaches that some sins are worse than other sins. Uh, Some sins they call are are mortal sins, Uh, sins like murder and adultery. Uh, They require very special intercession from a priest. Various sins need different approaches. But look at me, um, look, look down with me at verse 17. Don't look at me. All sin is wrongdoing. All sin is wrongdoing. There isn't a grading of sins from bad to worse. And we don't need a special ministry. I'm not a priest in that sense who can help you in any special way. In fact, this passage says, really, you have all you need in your neighbour. The person you're sitting next to, they can pray and they should pray for you and you for them. Uh, The trouble with the official Roman Catholic doctrine view is this, that it ignores the context of the letter, I think. Firstly, the the end of chapter one helps immensely here. Um, I don't know if you remember it. Go back and listen to the sermon from chapter one if you're not sure. All sin is sin, it says. Uh, If we confess, we are totally forgiven. How? Not through our prayers necessarily, but through Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, chapter 2, verse 1, he is the propitiation. He is our propitiation. But also the context of the letter as a whole. Uh, This is a very troubled church, uh, disturbed by the group that has left them behind. We've called them the departed. And so the two sins have been all over 1 John. Firstly, all sin Even having been born again, all sin every day, those sins, they're forgiven by the Lord Jesus if they are confessed. But rejecting Jesus outright, that is the sin that leads to ultimate death. It's actually what Mark's gospel calls the unforgivable sin. Uh, notice how the death that leads to the sin that leads to death is singular here. It is not a list of the worst sins. It is refusing the Son and the place of forgiveness. Just remember, they were happy with the water, but not the blood. That's why it was so dangerous, verse six. If you leave behind the blood, 
you leave behind the cross, the only place where life is found, where blood is poured out for our sins, well then, of course, that is the only singular sin which cannot be forgiven. That is the place of death. That was the place of the false teachers. Let's not forget, this, this letter is written for very wobbly remainers. So we are encouraged to do the opposite, I think, of the, of the official Roman Catholic teaching. Um, please, restore your brother. Pray for your sister. Make sure your siblings here have life by, by going to Jesus and being changed by life now and forever. And especially be praying for each other when they are not full of confidence. When they're running to God, running away from God, please be praying for each other then. It is possible, maybe, because we want to shy away from Roman Catholic teaching um, and lining up a row of confessional boxes down the side of church, it's possible that we don't confess to each other as much as we should. James chapter 5 and this passage should say that we do that a lot more maybe than we naturally do. Now I don't want you to come and confess to me because I'm your priest, but if you wanted to come and talk to me about your sin as your Christian brother, please come and talk to me. But please, please realise you could just as effectively choose any other brother or sister sat here next to you to pray with you. I hope you know that. Those sorts of relationships are just what it means to be Christian family together. Uh, Let's be really honest with each other. We all sin. Let's not pretend otherwise. Uh, We still have pretty obvious sins, really, don't we, that we should be dealing with. So let's be praying for each other regularly. When was the last time you prayed for your neighbour's sin here at 10am? Who was the last person you told about your sin so that they could pray for you? And don't forget the connection. How does all this reassure us? Well, it's wonderfully realistic, isn't it? And it's very encouraging. Uh, realistic, of, <clears throat> of course, uh, we still all fall into sin. That's realism, isn't it? Uh, don't get wrong expectations. But it's also very encouraging. Uh, those sins, uh, they never disqualify us from life with Jesus. The only sin that could disqualify us if we walk away from Jesus and leave the blood behind. And we should probably know each other well enough so that we can pray these things for each other. Because that is precisely what this testimony is all about. Uh, the water, the spirit, and the blood testify to forgiveness, to life. If we don't talk about sins and forgiveness, then we're going to miss out on the victory. We won't be the winners. If we don't confess together, then we'll be missing out We'd be better off, um, we'd be no better actually than the false teachers who ignore the blood entirely. It's just possible, I think, 
that our theology on this might be right, but that our actions and our practice in this area don't always follow through on our theology, if that makes sense. Uh, we, we talk about Jesus' blood a lot here, I think. Are we following through in confessing together? Do you see the connection now of how these three reassuring statements work? I often pray for my own sins. Uh, we should be praying for the sins of our family. Our love for the family looks like us praying for the family and the family's sins. It keeps us in life now and forever. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You can pray. Forgive him, Lord, for his anger problem. Give him life today and forever. That would be a wonderful prayer to pray for somebody here. Um, You could pray, forgive her, Lord, for her greed problem. Give her life today and forever. So three very reassuring statements John has given us to close the book. Victory. How? Through Jesus in faith. Hold on to him. Stick right there. And that message has given us eternal life. Eternal life. God then will hear every one of our prayers in line with his will. So our ongoing sin is no barrier to life with Jesus. Do you see how it works? And that is precisely why he ends exactly where he does. What more is there left to say? Verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I don't know how you felt when Andrew read that to us just now. Uh, Why bring up idols now? In a book which hasn't even mentioned idols once. Is this a total tangent? Did John forget himself? No, keep yourselves from substitutes. Anything that is fake. See, don't imagine for a moment that idols are just little lumps of metal. They can be as ordinary well as the television, the career, friendships, or whatever you might trade in for life with Jesus. What more could you possibly want, though, than life with Jesus now and forever. See, this command is simply the negative to the positive of life. Did you know that the false teachers that we've been seeing are actually on a par with idols? So don't abandon the true God for anything that is false. Don't stick. Oh, sorry, please, don't (laughs) twist. I'm so glad you were listening that you reacted to that. Stick, abide, don't twist. Keep yourselves from idols. Stay in the apostles' teaching and in loving the family. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the witnesses, the water, the blood, and the spirit.
thank you that we can trust them. And through trusting in the witnesses, we can overcome the world in Jesus. We experience life now and forever. We can have confidence knowing now that you hear us. Thank you for such assurance. When we doubt, and especially our, uh, for when our brothers and sisters sin, help us use this wonderful book to reassure ourselves. Help us know these truths. Help us keep coming back to these things. Help us keep thinking on these things. We pray all these things for your glory. Amen.